Lord, help us again this morning as we open your scriptures. Help us to understand this important foundational section of the book of Acts. I pray that you will help us to comprehend what you are communicating, not just to a perhaps single person, Theophilus, but that we will understand that this is a book being communicated to all lovers of God. And so help us open our eyes, help us to understand the amazing and beautiful call you have in our lives and what you are accomplishing, what you were promised to accomplish. And Lord, I pray you'll help us to understand the beauty of being involved in your program. So glorify yourself this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11 this morning. If you were here for our introduction, uh, one of the things we mentioned about 6 through 11 was that in 6 through 11, you learn about the character of the power of the Holy Spirit or, or of the working of the Holy Spirit, and certainly that is in this text, is revealed. There's something bigger that we want to look at this morning, although we'll, we will also access that discussion as well uh, as we look at this book uh, or this section of the first chapter. Uh, certainly we could argue in verses 6 through 11 what we find is that Jesus Christ in what could be argued is his last communication to his disciples uh, before his ascension and then including his ascension back to heaven. His last communication to his disciples was about from that point onward what is going to take place next. And when we understand that, and understand that it's not just for the disciples, but it's for all those, as Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, who will come after the disciples because of their teaching. We understand that we are called to something. And not only are we called to something, but we, under, we understand through this text that we are empowered to that calling. We talked about that in our introduction. We'll reference that again. But the way that Luke writes this text out for us is especially intriguing and uh, very instructive. And it's important that we see not just the individual pieces that he says, but how it, how it is laid out for us to understand. If we could start out this way, we would start out with these kind of thoughts. When you look at verses 6 through 11, it is very important you understand something you've heard me talk about many times. All of us have heard that discussion about the already not yet time frame or perspective. But let me explain it, because you've heard me say it many times. The idea of that term, the already not yet, is the idea, the already part, is that Christ has come. And he came for a purpose. And he accomplished his purpose. And according to the scriptures, the gospels, the endings of all the gospels, is that now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. With power, with authority, all power, all authority. He completely accomplished what he came to do. And what he came to do is to bring what? Redemption, right? He came to bring redemption. He came to pay the penalty for sin. He came to, to solve the conundrum of the fall of Genesis chapter 3. The conundrum that without Christ would remain a conundrum. It, 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 it ceases being a conundrum with Christ. Does that make sense? So the already is referencing this idea that the, the, the sin was a problem, Genesis chapter 3, Redeemer was promised, Messiah promised, Savior promised. That was completely fulfilled. Those promises were completely filled in Christ. He did come. He was born of a virgin. He did live as the perfect God-man. He was arrested and crucified, tried and crucified for the sins of people. And his crucifixion atoned for those sins and rescued people who were doomed for eternity, separated from God, rescued people to be um, in fellowship, redeemed, brother, inheritor, and all the rest, adopted, alive, all the things the scriptures say. That was accomplished. That's what the already means. Not yet means that there is something yet to come. Not something that is that has already happened now, 2,000 years later, the not yet is referring to his return and his judging 
and his the, the, the bringing of the kingdom to the complete fruition that the scriptures describe it to be. That is not yet. Now, if you were to think about already not yet, the way you need to understand it is, if we're thinking about it chronologically or calendar-wise, already is past tense, 2,000 years ago. Not yet is, by definition, yet future. So we are living in between the already and the not yet. Now, why do I bring that up? Is because in this text, verses 6 through 11, Luke is very clearly referencing the already, not yet. And he's addressing his, Jesus that is, is addressing his disciples with regard to the already, not yet, and what should be our understanding, what should the disciples' understanding be of that time on the calendar between the already and the not yet. Or... What should be, not just our perspective, but what is, not should be, but what is the role of the disciples in between the already and the not yet? What is the role of all true believers if they find themselves, and by necessity they will find themselves, New Testament believers, between the already and the not yet? So the, the, the statements that are encapsulated in verses 6 through 11 are then, and this is why I say chapter 1 and 2 is so important of Acts, 6 through 11, the ideas taught in 6 through 11 is then, in a, in a very tight encapsulated form, is then lived out in the apostles all the way through to the end of chapter 28. Clearly skinned out in their lives. And then, when you get into, like, Paul's later writings, you are introduced to it's yet continuing in the midst of the already not yet. And then you're introduced to John and his writings, again, in the midst of the already not yet. Because the not yet had not yet come yet. And today, as, at least as of 1028, the not yet has not yet come. Now, you may say, well, that's kind of funny. But it's not. It's serious. As of right now, this moment, it has not yet come. So we today are still living in the midst of the already, not yet. And it's interesting, when we look at the text this morning, you're going to find that, that the disciples are not fully getting it. Because the disciples' mindset, they just want the, not, they want the already and the not yet. They want it to be, in other words, already and yet. They want it to be now, all of it. And at some level, I get that, don't you? I mean, the yet it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Sin is like no longer tempting us. Death is no longer in our midst. We are fellowshipping with our Redeemer. Makes sense, doesn't it? But you know what? That's not what 6 through 11 is talking about. 6 through 11 is saying that the in between time, between the already and not yet, it is an amazing time. It's an amazing time. And it's an honor to be in the already not yet. And that's what he's going to talk about this morning. So let's read it, 6 through 11, then we'll work our way through it. Starting verse 6. So, when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Let me just pause briefly and point out the already not yet. Verse 6. So when they come together, they asked him, Lord, will, will you at this time restore the kingdom um, to Israel? What are the disciples talking about? What they're talking about, and I'll just be real brief at this point, obviously they're talking about the kingdom of God, but what they're talking about is an, they have an understanding at this point. They just went through 
40 days of Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God, post-resurrection. That's what the previous verses talked about. So a very intensive seminary class, if you want to say it that way, of the kingdom of God. They didn't understand it all. They clearly didn't at this point. In fact, they missed the largest chunk that he has to clarify in just a second. But one of the things they got is this. They got the understanding that the kingdom of God is something that becomes much greater post Christ's death and resurrection. Becomes really something. And Christ has died, has he not? He's resurrected. And in Jesus' teaching, seemingly at this point in time, they understand that there, once, once the death and resurrection takes place, there's something great coming, and the great thing coming is the kingdom and in all its fruition. Make sense so far? So they understood the already. He came, he died, and he rose again. Sin's been atoned for. Payment has been made. Wrath has been satisfied, the already. We'll break the rest of the text down, but you'll notice just briefly again at the end, he says uh, the two people that were speaking to him said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him going to heaven. Talking about the not, the, the not yet, correct? He has not yet returned. So let's talk about the not yet. We'll get into that when we get down a little bit later. But you'll notice that we have this this already not yet that's kind of bracketing the whole the whole text. The first verse talks about the already and not yet. It implies the already because they're talking about the grand conclusion. But then in the very end, verse eleven, uh, the not or the uh, yet the not yet is clearly presented. But in the midst of it all, we have discussion in these verses by Jesus. Maybe discussion is a wrong word. Teaching by Jesus about the function of the time frame in between the already, not yet. Again, I want to remind you, that's where we live. The time frame between the already, not yet. So, <clears throat> again, going back to verse 6. So when they had come together, they, that is the disciples, the eleven, asked Jesus, asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What the disciples are asking for is what they understand. What they understand is not just that, what Jesus said in Matthew, for example, Matthew 28. If you remember, right before the Great Commission, he said, All, what? All, all power, all authority has been given unto me. Right? And we've talked about that before, that that is very much kingdom verbiage. That's, that's, that's not just kingdom verbiage, that's king verbiage. He's declaring himself to be king, very clearly in that text. <clears throat> if you're a king, there must be a kingdom. And what the disciples are talking about here is not, will the kingdom be established? It's already been established. What's taught, what the disciples are asking is completion stuff. In this text, they're talking about completion stuff. And so the disciples are saying, okay, so you died, you rose again, and here we are. Sin's been atoned for. We've been made, we've been placed in a right standing before God and all the rest of those ramifications. So, now, are you going to bring the kingdom, put it together. Are you going to let it rain? Make it rain? Which would make sense if we don't truly understand what Jesus has been talking about. What Jesus says next is probably verse 7 and 8, the most important verses or words in all of sentences in all of the book of Acts. He starts off by saying, Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Verse 7. After spending 40 days talking to them about 
the kingdom, he says to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. You know what he's saying? It's not for you to be consumed with that. That's what he's really saying. By the way, this is one of those things that has always troubled me. Certainly, if you look at, at the scriptures, there's, there's, something, there's a grouping of scriptures called eschatological scriptures, or scriptures that are focused on the last things. Does that make sense? One of the famous books on eschatological uh, topics is what? Revelation, right? The book of Revelation. Um, and then you have, of course, you have a section in Daniel, you have some in First and Second Thessalonians, and you have various, uh, Joel, the Day of the Lord discussion, and you find other statements in the scripture that talk about these things as well. So there's no question that there is a large swath of the scriptures that are talking about end things, eschatological things. But at the same time, this verse has always challenged me because there are people who are consumed with end things. Books after books after books after books are written about end times, end things. Can anybody say Tim LaHaye? We all know it. Tim LaHaye. Classic example. And I'm not throwing him under the bus. I'm just saying classic example. <clears throat> I remember growing up now, if you're around my age, you may remember this if you were in church at my age. There was a movie that was brought out. Have you ever named, I, I'm trying to remember the name of the movie. What was it? Thief in the Night. That's right. The Thief in the Night. My goodness, everybody went crazy over it. That is, Christians did. To this day, I remember the opening, opening scene. The razor vibrating in the sink. Because so and so, somebody supposedly was raptured. It's, a, it's an amazing, I mean, for its day, you see it now, it's kind of funny. But its day, I mean, it was, it was riveting. But there's been so much talk and study of end things. And then I hear Jesus say what? It's not for you to know the, the times or seasons. It's a stunning statement because they're saying, is it... Is the end times now? It's, a, it's an effect what the disciples are saying. Is this the end times? Is this the, the time when you bring it all to a conclusion? And he says, yeah, exactly. He says, don't worry about that. He says, that's not for you. That's not for you. Now, Qualification. There's no question the scriptures talk about we should be what? Say it? Anticipating, yes. Longing for, right? His return. Says, I want to qualify it. There's no question. But what, we're talk what I'm talking about is people who are just all enthralled with and looking for and can't wait for, which, by the way, the Thessalonian church was struggling with, for example. But Jesus says to the disciples, no, it's not for you to know these things. I even take it so far as to say that I think there's a whole lot of eschatological statements in the scriptures that are not intended for us to understand. I don't think that they are all, all to us, for us to understand. I think they are for, primarily for us to be in awe of, wonder of. And as Hebrew says, for those, and, and Peter and other places, if you're under persecution, it's to encourage us that he's got it all figured out. And if you're not under persecution, it's to be reminded to what? To get in gear and glorify Christ. But even the book of Revelation, it's intriguing to know, it is not called the revelation of end things. It's called what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. The focus being where? Jesus Christ, not on what does each seal mean, or each each um, locust, or or any other number of things. It's Jesus Christ. It's not even to figure out if the if the horror of Babylon is this or that. It's Jesus Christ. That's what's for. 
So he says here in verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or season that the Father is fixed. The implication being, be assured, right? I love the, the words he uses. Be assured. When we talk about the end times, the not yet stuff, be assured of something. The Father has the times and seasons, what? Fixed. Fixed. Which, by the way, is no different from the Scripture state, stating that, that He has our days numbered. Same idea. Same idea. He's got our days numbered. Same idea. He's got the seasons and the times fixed for what? The end. It's not for you to understand that. It's not for you to know that. It's not for you to be all caught up in that. If you're caught up in that, you miss the point, he said. Quite to the contrary, verse 8, he says, but, which is obviously establishing a contrast. The word but's important there. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we have a, a, these verse 7, verse 8 contrast. They ask, is this the time for the kingdom to be brought to its fruition, to its conclusion? He says, that's not for you to wrestle with. Times and seasons fixed by the Father. And what he says next, verse 8, is I've got something more wonderful for you. That's what he's saying. Because, see, the disciples think that the kingdom in its full fruition would be amazing. And it will be. <laughs> but he says, I've got something for now, the already not yet, that is amazing. It will blow your mind. And that ties us back to verse 1, when he said that all that Jesus taught and did was what? Was the what? It was merely the beginning. Correct? Merely the beginning. So Jesus, in a very real way, is taking the disciples back to what he started off saying in Acts chapter 1. That was all beginning implication. Strongly, there's something great yet to come, and not just the not yet, but in the middle of the not yet, there's something amazing to come. And so he says in this time frame in verse 6, in contrast to you wanting to know if it is... <laughs> we get entertainment right in the middle of service. Isn't it great? <laughs> I think she's about to experience the not yet. <laughs> yeah, in the not yet, sin will be removed completely. And when it becomes yet, right? But we are in the middle of that. So in verse 8, what do we have? He says, yeah. When the not yet becomes yet, verse 7, it's going to be amazing. But in the already not yet, disciples, you need to understand something. This is where your focus should be. This is interesting because it flies in the face of what we sometimes think. As we just talked about anticipation, longing, yes. Hope, yes. Sure hope, absolutely. Because the Father's fixed the time and seasons. But it's not for us to understand all that. Long for it, yes, but our focus should be where? Now. Between the already and not yet. And because of the already and not yet. He doesn't deny the already and not yet. Instead, he's arguing because of the already that has been completed, beginning, and the not yet, which is promised, we're the year. We're right here. And this is an amazingly beautiful time. What time is he talking about? Well, here's the time he's talking about. The time when you receive power. He, basically what he's saying is, you already forgot verse 5. Didn't he? When they're, they, he, just, he just said to them, verse 5... John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit a few days from now, and they go where? To talk about 
The baptism? You'd think they'd talk about the baptism. Wouldn't you? But they go where? Talk about the not yet. They talk about what the final conclusion will be, and he just told them, no, what's really amazing is you're going to get baptized in a few days with the Holy Spirit. So he brings it back up in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When you are united with the Holy Spirit, when you are immersed in the Holy Spirit, you will receive power. This is in between the already and the not yet. And he says, and when that happens, verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I, I want to bring it up again because two reasons. Number one, a lot of you weren't here when we did the intro. Number two, because we're here. And we need repetition aids in learning, right? So we're going to talk about it again. It is interesting, again, I want you to notice a couple things in verse 8. You'll notice he says, you will be my witnesses, is not, you must be my witnesses. It is not, I command you to be my witnesses. I did some more reading on, about this this week. It's interesting, where I read, it seems like most places I read talk about it as an imperative, a command. But it is not. In the Greek, it's a future indicative. You will be. Indicative is a statement of Reality. It is not a command, and people want to make it the command, and they argue, well, it's a command based on other passages. Like in Acts chapter 10, God commanded us to preach the gospel. And they say that's talking about this passage. And I say, no, it's probably talking about the Great Commission. That's found in all four gospels. And that command is preceded by a what? By a what? And... Indicative. Matthew 28, classic. As you're going, make disciples. There's the command. Make disciples. Other, another one of the Gospels uses the word preach. The point is, the indicative beforehand is what? All power, all authority has been given unto me. As you're going, make disciples, therefore. You see, the indicative always precedes the imperative. And, and so what we have here is not the other place where it talks about commands tied here. It's tied to the previous command, which is tied to an indicative, again, who Jesus is. He now has all authority. The kingdom has come into being. So this statement in verse 8 is clearly an indicative. It's not a command. He is stating, in other words, verse 5, here's what's going to happen. In a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Again, an indicative, you will be. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Again, a statement, indicative statement of what is going to happen. Not just you're going to be baptized, he's going to come upon you, and you will receive power. Both statements of reality. This is what happens to followers of God. True, redeemed followers of God. And he goes on with one more indicative, a future indicative, just like the other ones were. And you will be, some of your translations may translate it, shall be, same thing, my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the other most part of the world or the ends of the earth. You will be. And he's speaking to the disciples and he's speaking about a time frame between the already and not yet. Christ has come. He has died. He has risen again. God's wrath was satisfied. And now the gospel because the veil has been torn, as it were, is now available. Something yet is to come, but this is our time. This is what Jesus is saying. To the disciples, he's saying, this is your time. To you and I, he's saying, this is my time. This is our time. This is your time. And the challenge of this passage is striking.
Encouraging, yes. Convicting, absolutely. And appropriately so. Encouraging, yeah, I'm not on this on my own. The scriptures are really clear about this. That when Christ goes, he's sending the comforter, the paraclete. He's sending the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to dwell with us, to guide us, to teach us, to convict us, to, convict us, to point us to Jesus, to empower us, to be enthralled with Jesus, to live in the love of Christ, and to be able to recognize the love of Christ, to understand the mercy of God, to understand His graciousness toward us who believe. We can go on with those conversations, right? The grand result of all that, though, is what? All that's coming because of the Holy Spirit given to us with what? Power. The grand summation of all that power is this. The power of the Holy Spirit cannot be blank. What do you think the word would be? Thwarted, yes, but more importantly, contained. Does the Scripture talk about uh, things like grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit? Yes. But true, do true believers forever grieve and forever quench the Holy Spirit? No. There's no place in the Scripture that can be argued that, that, that a believer, a true believer, could go on forever quenching the Holy Spirit. Spirit cannot be contained. Can't. And when you combine with that with the fact that the Scriptures tell us that He gives us a new heart, He takes us from death to life, correct? And it's what the Scriptures say. We either believe it or we don't. We have to understand that, that the, the ramifications of all, these, all this talk is all power talk, by the way. It's all power. Power of the Holy Spirit. Death, life, new heart, <laughs> understanding all these truths, grace, mercy, adoption, inheritance, all these things, and many, many others. We need to understand the power can't be contained. The power of the Holy Spirit will not. But interestingly enough, I would argue the teaching of Scripture is not just, I think we undersell it when we say it cannot be contained. I think we undersell it. Because when someone is changed from death to life, they receive a new heart, the Scriptures tell us. Right? And we begin to become recipients in greater and greater ways of, of God's love, right? A continual. God's love just inundating us, right? But He changes us so that what I once hated, I now... Love and what I once loved, I now hated. Now, if you don't believe that, read Acts. We have Peter, had a problem with the Gentiles. And what happens? He ends up loving the Gentiles. You have Saul hating Christians, despising them, persecuting them, throwing them in jail, and murdering them, and helping others do the same. He gets gloriously saved, and what happens? His what? His affections totally change, don't they? He loves God, so he loves, and he loves Christ, so he loves Christ's children, who are also grafted in, like he was equally grafted in. Something changes. We see that, don't we, in the Scriptures? In fact, I would argue you would be hard-pressed to find any place. We can find all sorts of places where people flounder in sin that are believers, correct? I mean, Paul himself even admits it in Romans chapter 7. And the end of 2 Corinthians. But you will find that people fail in the, in the New Testament, just like they did in the Old Testament. But what you find with those people, though, at the same time, is there are people who are at the same time struggling and failing and sinning. They're also repenting and also what? What? Changing, yes, and something else. Getting closer to Acts 1.8, they are what? 
they're empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they're what? Preaching. They're proclaiming, aren't they? That's what you see. They're proclaiming. That's what you're shown. Over and over and over and over again. Because see, Acts 3 through 28, the end of 28, and then John, uh, John's writings and Paul's later writings, what do you see? That's what's all there. It's there to show you the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not to show you that Paul's a great guy and John's a great guy. You know, Jesus is great too, but so are they. No, Peter, Paul himself said what? I'm, what is Paul? What is Apollos, right? What is Paul? What is Apollos? I'm just, I'm just a water. I'm just a planter and someone else is a waterer, but God yields the increase, right? Their perspective is ain't much. They're just slaves or servants of Jesus Christ, which is how they open up most of their books. They write their letters. The point is that what you see throughout, one, on one hand, is very encouraging. We're not in here on our own waiting for the conclusion, and we're just floundering our way through. But the Holy Spirit has been given to us, and God's promised never to leave us nor forsake us. That promise is re referencing the Holy Spirit in power. We like to flip that, that verse around so much, right? As somehow it's an encouraging passage, and it is, but we shortchange it, we don't have the power part. Instead, we have, well, Christ is with us, isn't that cool? He's like, he hangs out. And he'll promise never to stop hanging out. Isn't that something? Are you kidding? That's not what it's talking about. When, when God comes into our lives, he comes in power. And what does that power look like? It looks like people being alive to something other than they were alive to before. They were alive to the kingdom of Satan and dead to Christ. And now they're alive to Christ. And that's true life. That's the only true life. And there are people who are dead to their old father. And they're becoming more and more like their new father, God, and less and less like their old father, Satan. That's John. And they're glorifying their new father. They're glorifying their older brother. They're worshiping. And they're enthralled with in a growing way because they have the Holy Spirit in power. And ultimately, in light of this text, the ramification in this text is what? They go out and they preach to who? They proclaim to who? The unconverted in Jerusalem. And the unconverted in Judea and Samaria. And the unconverted to the end of the earth. Again, it's not a command. It's a statement of reality. This is what it means to have the Spirit in power. And by the way, just so we can be exclusive, there is no such thing as a spirit with no power. At least not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Maybe an unholy spirit. But not. there is no such thing as having the Spirit being united with the Holy Spirit, immersed in the Holy Spirit, having the Spirit come upon you, to be as tight as Acts 1.8 can be here, there's no possible wiggle room in the, in the scriptures of having that with no accompanying power. If we have the Holy Spirit, we have Holy Spirit power. Or to put it a different way, if we have the Holy Spirit, we have God power. That's what he says. We can't miss it. Can't. And that power, according to Acts 1.8, has a in Acts 1.8, a singular focus. Now, elsewhere, the scriptures broaden the focus out. Because, for example, in Matthew 28, it says what? You'll be witnesses, I'm sorry, in Matthew 28, it says, in the Great Commission, it says, baptizing them, but then it goes on and says what? And teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. That sounds like the second part is referring to believers, correct? Doesn't it? You're not teaching unbelievers to observe. You're teaching believers to observe all that he's commanded, correct? 
And so certainly this Holy Spirit power is towards believers as well as unbelievers. But in Acts 1, 8, the emphasis is upon unbelievers. Toward, not, not, not that the Holy Spirit and power will come on unbelievers, but the emphasis here is the Holy Spirit coming in power to the disciples is going to be focused, dramatically focused, towards unbelievers. All the way to the end of the end of the earth. All the way to the end of the earth, which includes today, as we talked about before. By the way, this is a side, but it amazed me how many commentators talk about the end of the earth being Rome, because that's how far Acts went. And I, I read that, I'm like, that's not possible. We can't say it ended then. It doesn't end till the not yet becomes yet. In context, it cannot stop till the not yet becomes yet. And elsewhere in the book of Acts even, it very clearly states in Acts 10 that it's going to be for much more than just the disciples, or in that case, apostles. So, getting back to 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You get the sense that for Jesus in his last final communication with the disciples, evangelism is somewhat important, don't you? Don't you get that sense? And rightfully so. And again, trying my hardest to avoid in this text any command. Certainly the scriptures do command us to evangelize. We can't miss that. But in this text, it's not a command. We must recognize that the text is very clear, Jesus is very clear, that this will happen in his children. When we have power, and the argument in the book of Acts, as we work our way through, is that salvation brings the Spirit, right? Sal I'm sorry, let me change that. The Spirit brings salvation with power, and he remains with us with power. We'll talk about the little confusion early on in the book of Acts in future weeks. But that happens at conversion. And we do know, don't we? Don't you see it? Even in the scriptural accounts, when someone's saved, what happens? They're transformed. They're beginning to proclaim, aren't they? It happens like immediately. They're trumpeting it, aren't they? And so at the same time that we read this text and are encouraged and absolutely should be encouraged, we have the Holy Spirit with power. Before we just embrace that understanding, we need to pause and ask ourselves if that's true. Don't we? Because I don't see any place in Scripture where he says there will be exceptions to that. And so I think we do need to pause and ask ourselves, is that true? Is that true with me? Not true with the Holy Spirit. Is it true with me? Do I find, and if I may step outside of Acts for a second, because I want to make sure we get it as clearly as possible, do I find that the love to quote Paul from, from 1 Thessalonians, do I find that the love of Christ controls me? Now that's very different from the love of Christ encourages me. The love of Christ reminds me. The love of Christ uh, um, helps me. Or use whatever word you want to. He says the love of Christ controls me. And in two verses later, one, one of the other comes first. He says, because I know the fear of the Lord, I persuade men. Now, where in the world would Paul recognize the love of Christ? And where in the world would Paul get the idea of having fear of God? It has to be from the Holy Spirit at work in him, right? Now, recognizing that he's not different from you and I, he's a fallen sinner just like you and I are, he's someone who needed, needed salvation just like you and I did, he's someone who needed to be t break, brought from death to life, like you and I. For Paul, the love of Christ. 
That is the love of Christ toward him controls him. And he finds himself controlled by Christ's love. And that means what? The love of Christ controls me and I find myself proclaiming him. Now it includes more than that, but you get the idea. And because I understand the fear of the Lord, where would he get the fear of the Lord? Does the lost people, do lost people have the fear of the Lord? No. They fear all sorts of things. They don't have the fear of the Lord. At least not saving fear, right? For Paul, the fear, because he knew, understood, realized, comprehends the fear of the Lord, the, the implication or the argument Paul's making is, I can't help but persuade men. That, that's the idea. That's what Paul's trying to present. I find as, because the Holy Spirit has opened my eyes to see and understand the fear of the Lord, I find myself persuading men. Because I recognize the love of God. Because I'm a recipient of the love of God. <laughs> It controls me. The love of God controls me. And I find myself wanting people to enjoy and realize the love of God versus the wrath of God. I bring all that to, 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 to again, as we talked about during the introduction, we need to challenge ourselves and ask ourselves, is that me? Is that me? Do I have the Holy Spirit with power? And by the way, we can't just evaluate it according to what I do, right? We know that, because there can be many in that day that say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're going to say, well, we did all these things in your name. There's no implication that all the things they're talking about are bad things. In fact, I think they're really good things. But they didn't know the love of God. They didn't fear the Lord. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the, and the ends of the earth. Implication, last implication, there's many other implications we could bring up here though, but the implication that's so, I think, obvious in the text is Jesus saying to his disciples, right now it's clear, your focus is where? What's that? On the, on, on the not yet. And, he, and they want it to be consumed, they want the consummation. Absolutely. Right? That's where their focus is. Correct? And Jesus says, in effect, in just a few days, you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit and your focus is going to change. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. The focus is going to change. It's not you've got to change your focus when the Spirit comes with power. Your focus, your attention, what you're after, what you're consumed by, what, what your longing is all about, what your hopes are and your dreams are, and the, the theme of your life, Jesus says to his disciples, is going to change in just a few days from now. And when he does, buckle your seatbelts. Is that what he's saying? Because you're going to be witnesses. In Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth, the end of the earth. So we could, we could argue very strongly that for what Jesus is saying is, the things of this earth will what? Will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Or you could change it in the light of his love and mercy. You could put all, all sorts of things in there, right? Or you could just sum it all up in light of the power of the Holy Spirit within. Couldn't we say that? Because what Jesus is telling the disciples, you need to understand something, disciples, in a few days hence, something unlike anything else that could ever possibly happen to you is going to happen. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit in power. And when you do, your entire life will be turned upside down. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what it sounds like to me. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They're thinking naturally. You know? And, and some people debate back and forth whether they're still thinking about Rome or if they're understanding a little bit more because of the 40 days of teaching. I think they understand more about the kingdom of God because of the 40 days of teaching they got on the kingdom of God. But they're still caught up in the wrong things. It's natural. You're right, Tom. It's natural versus supernatural, right? That's what it is. It's horizontal versus vertical thinking. It is carnal versus supernatural. And he says, this is what's going to happen. Now, can I just ask you a quick question? Is that what happened? Is that what, what we see here, his promise of what will happen, indicative, what future indicative, what is going to happen, did it happen? It clearly happened to Peter, didn't it? And the rest of the disciples, didn't it? And remained happening, didn't it? Well, I'm getting there. I'm, I, I'm getting it. But, but it, it happened, didn't it? Right? I mean, Peter first, right? My goodness. It came to all, all 11, but Peter was a spokesman, wasn't he? And he's preaching away. The guy who was afraid, we talked about before, talk, afraid of a slave girl. Now he's like, <laughs> whatever. Hit me with your best shot. And then you have Stephen. Ooh, we see it continues, and it leaves just the disciples. Doesn't it? It's not just the disciples. We find Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Oh, before Stephen, we find that there are some who you think are, but they're not, right? Ananias and Sapphira. And then, that's uh, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, Six and seven, you introduce to Stephen. Woo! It's not just the disciples. And in Acts chapter nine, one of the worst enemies of the cross of Jesus, right? Jesus, uh, 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 Saul. And what happens? He's gloriously converted. And what happens? He's preaching, isn't he? Like. First chance he gets, he's in the synagogue and he's preaching Christ and him crucified and, and all the Christians are afraid of him. Why would they be afraid of him? Because of what they know. They don't know him. They don't know the new, the new Saul. They're like, ah! And they find out he's a believer and they're united together. Right? It's stunning to see. And before that, there's the guy that took Saul in when he's blind. What's his name? Come on, Charles. What was the name of the guy who took Saul in? Was it Ananias? There you go. Ananias takes him in. Like, that's a pretty bold thing. Taking the, the guy who's, who's imprisoning and, 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 and uh, punishing and killing Christians and helping and encouraging others to do, he brings him in and helps him and cares for him. Why would he do that? Power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not even going to ask you what you said, Tom. <laughs> Yeah, act of blind faith, yeah. Oh, boy. And and you see it, Silas, there's another one, right? Like, he's not an apostle. But he's got the power of the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? And you see it over and over and over and over again. But even though you see it, we look backwards and we see it, and the, the implication is what you said, Tom, it's continuing to this day as Jesus prayed in this high priestly prayer to those who will believe because of what the disciples will preach. But what do we have? Going back to the text itself, verse 9, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took them out of their sight. The ascension. That's what 9 is talking about. He declares his final statement. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the innermost part of the earth. Verse 9, we find as soon as he completes that, he is lifted up and a, and a cloud took him, took him out of their sight. Verse 10, that is, he ascended. Verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by, by them in white robes. Now, people have argued they're angels. Other people have argued they're Moses and Elijah. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Right? We don't need to know. If we needed to know, he'd tell us. The simple matter of fact is they were heavenly beings. 
Two men stood beside them in white robes. The implication of white robes is pretty clear in the scriptures, that idea. And said, so these two people speak, these two men speak to the disciples and say to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. We're going to take the last statement before we take the first statement. I already mentioned the last statement. That's that not yet statement. It's the promise, right? Yes, it concludes with the promise that he's going to what? Come back. He's going to return in the same way you saw him go into heaven. He's going to return. Now, I'm not going to do all sorts of theological gymnastics to dive into the nuts and bolts of what that means because of, why do you think? Because of what he said, you don't need to know the times and seasons. We need to focus on something else instead, right? Understand this. He's going to return. That's what he said. He's going to return. And elsewhere, he expands that outwards. He's going to return. Well, even before that, he said in John, right? He's going to return to come back for his children, right? To take them to where he is and so we'll be with him forever. So we get that. He made that very clear. However, the interesting thing about the text Certainly it's interesting and valuable to understand he's going to return. That's our hope. But the interesting thing about the text here in verse 11 is, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? That's an interesting statement by these two men in white. He goes up, and I would find myself looking, wouldn't you? I mean, when was the last time you saw some of you were talking to him, and all of a sudden they just kind of levitated and just kept on going? Any, that happened to any of you guys? Up in the clouds. Happened to any of y'all? No, of course not. That's a pretty stupendous thing, right? I mean, that's mind-blowing, isn't it? Unless you know the Old Testament. Elijah? Elijah? This, this is such an interesting connection with Elijah. Elijah, in a very real way, is a, a precursor to this. It, it, obviously not perfect because Elijah wasn't Jesus. But Elijah's taken up into heaven and someone remains. Who remains? Elisha. And you know what's interesting? Elisha is described as having more power than Elijah and uh, performing more miracles than Elijah. Interesting, because he just said, I'm going to go. When I go, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit with power. And what I did was just the, was just the, verse 1, beginning of something amazing that's going to happen. Elijah's ministry was just the beginning of what is yet to come. That's what he just said. And the disciples are standing there just staring into heaven, up into the clouds. And it's almost as if the two men in white are saying, excuse me, men of Galilee, I want to remind you what Jesus said. Isn't that what what it's almost implying, I think more than almost, he's saying, I want to remind you what he said. <laughs> he's going to return, but, 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 gentlemen, what are you doing? Look in there. He just gave you something amazing. He just told you a promise. And by the way, if you go back into the, in the Gospels, he tells them, I want you to remain in where? N not upper room specific, but in Jerusalem until... The Holy Spirit comes upon you, right? So if he's hearing this, they he, he should have said, huh, he's gone, he promised, we got to go to Jerusalem and wait, right? Let's wait. Now they do go there, right? And they do wait. But the interesting thing is, the point he's trying to make, the two men are trying to make is, why are you gazing there? What you ought to be gazing at is what? In other words, to put it this way, instead of gazing this way, in this text, instead of gazing this way, you should be gazing this way. Now that sounds like totally contrary. Horizontal versus vertical, right? Totally contrary. But it's not. Because he just said what? You shall be 
witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other most part of the earth. Is that what he said? So the idea here is, what are you looking there for? You should be looking this way. For what? For the gospel. For the, for the fields that are what? White for harvest. Because this, this way, is the way that you glory in Christ. You don't glory in Christ by this. Because this is an implication of, oh, what's going on? What's happening next? No, he already told you. And ultimately, in 6 to 11, here's what he's saying. You're after the grand consummation of the kingdom. Verse 6, I'm telling you, this is your plan for the kingdom. This is what I will do through you for the kingdom right now. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost part of the earth, and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit with power that the kingdom spreads. That's the point of 6 through 11. So on one hand, be encouraged. But on the other hand, be convicted and ask ourselves, wait, is that what's going on? Are we kingdom people? It's really easy to say we are, isn't it? Are we kingdom people? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm part of the kingdom. I'm, 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 I'm a kid of the kingdom, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I, I'll pray the Lord's Prayer and say, your kingdom come, your will be done. But functionally speaking, I don't find myself bringing the kingdom to my neighbor. I don't find myself bringing the kingdom to my coworker. I don't find myself bringing, bringing the kingdom to my loved ones, my friends. And somehow I still find myself deceived into thinking that I'm a kingdom guy. It doesn't work that way. There's no power there. We, we haven't gotten there yet, but I, I, again, I find it interesting. The guy who cowered in fear is no longer what? Fearing. He's no longer afraid. Peter. No longer afraid. At all. It's stunning to see. Holy Spirit power. Yes. Oh, yeah. But he repents. Yeah, so that, that's the beautiful thing about it. He repents, and it repents as evidence as he ministers to Gentiles then. Absolutely. Yeah, not saying we're perfect, not by any stretch of the imagination, but it is stunning to see the transformation that takes place. Isn't it? That's Holy Spirit power. So we got to close, but let me just challenge each one of us to examine ourselves. Is that spirit power evident in my life? Maybe it is at times. Maybe we need to repent and turn and believe and follow. You've heard me say it many times before. I'll say it again. I'm still convinced that the vast majority of people all across our world that say they're believers are not. There's no power. There's no love of Christ controlling. There's no fear of fear of the Lord that causes them to persuade men. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. I'm just absolutely convinced that the Holy Spirit with power is still coming upon people. And that coming upon people is transformative. They still need to repent because we are still sinners. But we find ourselves glorying in our God and King. And we find ourselves reveling in our God and King. And we find ourselves trumpeting our God and King. We find ourselves more and more saying that, that I am merely an earthen jar and I got this amazing treasure. And I just want the treasure to show. That's what happens to people who are redeemed. Over and over and over. So let us pray that that will be us, that the Spirit will work in our lives that way, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We know you never change. 
And never changing, we know you would never change from giving us the Holy Spirit with power to giving us the Holy Spirit with no power or minimal power. Because you are a God who's after your kingdom and you're after your glory and you are empowering people through the Spirit to glory in you and to be lights in the midst of darkness, to shine forth. And as we will see later on in Acts 2 and following, that it won't be just for unbelievers, toward unbelievers, but it will be toward believers too. We need you. So we ask you to work in our hearts if if we're unsaved, that you will open our eyes to see that by your Spirit. And if we are saved, that you will just bring power like you have promised. Glorify yourself. Change us for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.